0: Know if you noticed but I noticed in the very first song the difference that makes in our singing the the addition of those voices and how powerful that is and I have loved singing with you this morning which brings us to our subject when most people walk into an assembly of the church of Christ for the very first time it doesn't take them long to experience a little bit of religious culture shock but they don't have to worry because they're not going to encounter anything too weird it's just that the music is different from what they're accustomed to. You see, most worship services in Christian culture today are filled with sounds that are conspicuously absent from ours. What I mean is the familiar sound of the piano or the organ, drums, guitars, keyboards, harps, bells, horns, all of those sounds are nowhere to be heard when we come together to worship. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that members of Churches of Christ are opposed to music because we really love music. I mean, we really, really do. It's just that the musical sounds that fill our worship services and bombard the ears of our first-time guests is a sound that most American churchgoers have seldom, if ever, heard in a worship assembly. And it's the sound of voices, just voices, singing praises to God without any instrument of music. Our, our musical praise is 100% vocal. It's all a cappella, which simply means in the style of the chapel or in the style of the church. And it's today commonly used to describe singing without any instrumental accompaniment. By the way, I don't have to tell you that a cappella singing, even in the entertainment world, has seen a resurgence of interest in recent days with groups like Pentatonix and others being quite popular. But that's the entertainment world. Our discussion and our concern for this morning is... What kind of musical worship does God desire? What kind of musical worship does God approve of when we come together to worship Him in our assemblies? You see, some folks are are really surprised when they see what they see and hear what they hear in our assemblies. Maybe I ought to backtrack a little bit on what I said earlier about first-time guests to Churches of Christ in our services not encountering anything too weird. Because a cappella-only music may not be weird to those of us who've grown up in it because we're accustomed to it. But I understand that to a lot of folks, weird happens to be the adjective of choice when it comes to describe worship without an instrument. To them, it just sounds weird. And who can blame them for being surprised since seeing the lack of instruments in worship in an American church is about as rare as seeing a triple play in baseball. And so it comes as a surprise to a lot of people that while Acapella-only praise may be virtually unheard of in today's church culture. It has been the practice of most churches since Christianity began. That's the point of surprise for a lot of people who have even studied religious doctrine in America. In fact, the vast majority of Christians for some 2,000 years have been just as rock-solid in their commitment to vocal-only praise as we are. Every time somebody says sing acapella, as I mentioned a moment ago, they're saying sing in the style of the chapel or sing in the ch- the style of the church because that's what the term acapella means. It comes from a Latin term, which means just that, singing as in the chapel. And, and why do we use a word that means as in the chapel to describe our singing without instruments? I'm sure you can put two, to two and two together without any help from me, but... Please bear with me while I connect the dots for just a moment. We say a cappella, as in the chapel, to describe vocal-only singing because music historically heard in Christian houses of worship or chapels has been vocal-only. Now that, again, surprises a lot of people. They assume that it's been this way since Pentecost, where most Christian churches come together and they sing with the instrument. Let's start, if we may, with a brief consideration of the church fathers. And I want to go on record as saying I know that what early church historians and leaders and writers in the first and second century said about the worship of the church, that does not constitute divine truth. I understand that, and I readily agree with that. But it's still very interesting, and I think it's an important insight into how the early church worshipped, to see how that those men who lived while the early church was on the face of the planet to see what they thought about and what they had recorded and 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 what they said about the first those first few centuries in the early existence of the church. You know, to boil it down into a couple of sentences, church fathers were simply the theologians, the writers, and the teachers from the first few centuries of church history. And you'll find their names scattered along a church history timeline from roughly the days immediately after the apostles to around the year 600. So that's what we mean by when we talk about church fathers. What were their thoughts about our use of instruments in worship? Music historian James McKinnon probably summed it up in one sentence as well as anybody could and a lot better than I ever could. In addition to authoring five books on early Christian and Latin medieval music history, McKinnon was a fellow who was a former music professor at the University of North Carolina. He published more than 100 articles in music journals and reference books during his distinguished career. And what he said about it I think is very interesting. In one of his books on early Christian worship, he wrote the following. Hang very carefully with me for a moment as you listen to this quote. He said, The antagonism... Which the fathers of the early church displayed toward instruments has two outstanding characteristics vehemence and uniformity. Notice the three specific words that McKinnon used to sum up the attitude of church fathers toward instruments and worship antagonism, vehemence, and uniformity. Think with me for a moment about those words in turn. First, antagonism just means that instruments and worship were opposed by the church fathers. I think that we could all agree with that. Second, vehemence means that they were intensely and vigorously opposed through the use of the instrument in our worship. And third, uniformity means that instruments in worship were intensely imposed, opposed by all the church fathers. Across the board, uniformly, they were against it. Now, I don't really need to say it, but I will. Obviously, instruments did not make their way into Christian worship under their watch. Because they vigorously and intensely opposed it. So when did instruments of music begin to infiltrate our Christian worship assemblies? Was it right after the church fathers passed from the scene? And the next generation came along and they did not oppose it as vigorously and as intensely as did the church fathers? Well, not quite. Opposition to instruments and worship definitely was not buried in the grave along with the last church father. That opposition continued to be the status quo for several centuries after the establishment of the church. Now, time this morning does not permit a a detailed description of the history of the instrument through those first few centuries. But I will and must say that you can trace the use of the instrument, or maybe I should say, more importantly, the lack of the instrument through the Middle Ages, down through the period of the Reformation movement, and through the period of the Puritans as the 1600s rolled around, and you will find a continual and persistent opposition to the instrument in our Christian worship services. By the way, some folks are under the mistaken impression that because we use no instrument in our worship assemblies, that we do not like instrumental music in any context of life. I don't know if you ever had that discussion. I've run on people when we've talked about the differences between what they believe and what we believe, and I've had people tell me, well, so you folks hate music. No, no, no. So you hate instrumental music. No, we don't hate it. In fact, I will say, as Joshua one time did, as for me in my house, at the Medlin home, I'm trying to keep this straight in my mind. We have a piano. We have an electric keyboard. We have two violins, one viola. We have five guitars. We have a banjo. It is the South, after all. And we have a harmonica. So to say that we don't like musical instruments in any context of life, it's just absolutely wrong. I also have a collection of some 1,200 cassettes. Do you all remember what those are? And a 1,000 CDs, and most of those have instrumental music on them. We love instrumental music. You see, in a certain way, modern-day members of Churches of Christ take the same position as the Puritans did in the 1600s. I would not know that had I not read it. But prominent church historians and longtime Princeton professor, a man by the name of Horton Davies, made this observation about the Puritans. Listen carefully. He said, and I'm quoting now, The Puritans welcomed instrumental music into their homes while refusing its assistance in their meeting houses. This restriction is based in part on the demand for simplicity and sincerity in worship, but also on their interpretation of scripture and the finality of the authority of the new testament for them End quote i they're they're right on target now when watch how davies then summarizes the thinking of those early american puritans again i'm quoting he says it was not that they disliked music but that they loved the religion of christ ordinances even more i absolutely love that last statement Davies is saying that the Puritans did not reject the instruments in worship because they didn't like instruments, but because they loved following the will of God even more. And they were convinced that vocal only praise was his will when they gathered together for worship. I think that pretty much states where we stand. Paul said, I remind you in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. In my estimation as a student of the Bible, that is an important and probably the most pivotal passage in the Bible in understanding the matter of biblical authority. Paul is simply saying that everything that we do as Christians, whether it be in our speech or in our actions, must be authorized by, done in the name of, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there must be authority for what we do. And the reasonable mind comes early in Bible study to understand that the Bible simply cannot tell us everything that we are not to do. Because I know that you've had that discussion with people on occasion. Well, the Bible doesn't say that we can't do this or that. Well, it can't. The Bible couldn't be, in fact, if the Bible said everything that we are not to do, we'd have to haul our Bibles around in the back of a pickup truck. That's how big it would be. No, Biblical authority demands that if God has said that we're to do something, and then secondly, he has told us how that something is to be done, it's wrong. It is a clear violation of the will of God to do it, any other way. It's the difference between generic and specific commands that we've talked about before. For example, the Bible doesn't have to say, don't have Dr. Pepper and potato chips on the Lord's Supper table. And I'm not being profane when I say that, but the Bible didn't have to say that. We understand that when it specifies what elements that we are to use in our commemoration on a weekly basis of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord, that eliminates everything else. Is the law of necessary exclusion. So all God had to do was to tell us, here's what I do want, and that eliminates everything else. He didn't have to tell Noah, now here's the kinds of wood you're not to build the ark of. But rather he told him what you are to use. That eliminated everything else. Let me submit very quickly, if I may, that we in churches of Christ are not alone in our position on the use of the instrument in our worship. And although instrumental praise is obviously now the norm among most church groups, I think it's important to point out that we're, we're not alone in our commitment to unaccompanied singing in our worship. There's actually a sizable chunk of the larger worldwide Christian community that shares our vocal-only conviction. And let me also add, it is a conviction born of our understanding of the matter of biblical authority. We do not worship without the instrument simply because... That is a Church of Christ tradition, although I've heard that thrown around on occasion. We do not worship this way because that's the way we've always done it, but because we're firmly convinced and convicted that that is the way that we please God in our worship. And it really is, folks, it really is about pleasing God. It is not about pleasing or entertaining ourselves, or at least it ought to be. And I think that is one of the fundamental issues that has to be considered. Who are we trying to please when we come together to worship? So most of that chunk of the Christian community that I mentioned a moment ago, but not all of it, is found in the Orthodox family of churches. This is a matter of history, and you can go back and read it for yourself. And as far as the numbers go, most estimates that I've seen put the number of Orthodox adherents in the neighborhood of some 250 million worldwide. I think you'd say that's a pretty good-sized neighborhood, 250 million people who are Orthodox adherents. For comparison, a little over a billion people in our world today claim to be Catholic, and roughly 500 million would call themselves Protestant. Now back to the matter of vocal-only worship. After the Great Schism, that's a part of church history as well, a cappella-only worship was the practice in both Catholic and Orthodox churches for many years. But as instruments began to creep into Roman Catholic worship in the 1300s, the Orthodox churches remained absolutely solid in their commitment to have vocal-only praise, non-instrumental praise in their worship. And let me say, and they still do. Some 700 years later, they are still committed to vocal-only worship. So we are not alone in our commitment. Now, here's the part of the lesson that I call just the facts, ma'am. Joe Friday... In the television show, Dragnet, of which I and maybe three other people in this audience remember, always said just the facts, ma'am, when he was investigating a crime. I'm going to give you some facts very quickly that I hope will be the backbone of what I'm trying to say today. Fact number one. In the Old Testament, God asked for singing and instrumental music for use in worship. There is no doubt about that. 2 like Chronicles chapter twenty-nine, Psalm one fifty, and a number of other passages indicate that that was what God expected and required of them—singing and instrumental music—and that was something that those people in that day could be absolutely sure about. Fact number two: in the New Testament, the Christian age in which you and I live, God has stipulated and authorized singing. We've already looked at Ephesians five nineteen. There are seven other places where singing is mentioned in the New Testament or what the Hebrews writer liked to call the fruit of the lips, Hebrews 13, verse 15. And let me add, that is also something that worshipers today can be absolutely sure about. Fact number three, after after the church came into existence and for at least the first 600 years, God was given exactly what he asked for. And that was vocal only praise as our singing in worship. Fact number four, before the New Testament was completed, the early apostolic church had the Old Testament scriptures as their primary source of information. information. That is, the early Christians carried around their Old Testaments, usually the Septuagint version, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Old Testament, as we've seen a moment ago, approved and encouraged the use of instruments right down to the naming of the specific instrument that they were supposed to use. And again, we would refer to 2 Chronicles 29 and Psalm 150. And also at the time of the early church, instruments were available. There were Christians that were a part of those congregations that knew how to play those instruments. And yet their talent was not exercised in worship. That's important. Clearly they understood that the Old Testament regulations were not to be followed in the New Testament church. Fact number five, the instrumental music was absent from Christian worship during the days of the inspired apostolic teaching. Which indicates that the apostles, who were very familiar with the use of instruments in their temple worship under the old law, never instructed, never encouraged the new church, the infant church, to use those instruments in their worship to God. Fact number six, we're almost through. Fact number six, our text, Ephesians 5.19, has two major parts in it. First, Paul says we need to be singing. And then second, he says, and making melody. The making melody is, in fact, translated from a Greek word, "solo," which means to pluck or twang. Sometimes people will look at that and say, well, that means that there must be an instrument because what else would, would you be plucking or twanging as the strings of an instrument? The adverbial phrase, though, that follows tells where that action is to take place. That is, God specifies what instrument is to be plucked or twanged, and you'll notice in that text it is in the heart, not on the harp, but in the heart. The heart is the instrument that we pluck when we sing praises to God. So that fixes the location of the plucking in a figurative sense. Fact number seven, and finally, the design of worship under the new covenant is fundamentally different than the design of worship under the old law. So anytime we go back to the old law today to try to find justification for doing what we're doing under the new law of Christ we're going to be hurting and we're going to be inevitably inconsistent because if I try to go to the Old Testament as justification for having the instrument in the New Testament church I've got to bring everything that they did in the Old Testament and worship to God into the New Testament church including animal sacrifice the burning of incense and all the rest we've got to reestablish the priesthood through which we worship just as they did under the old law let me end with a brief restoration story Because face it, that much of the world and even most of the religious world really can't understand our concern over this. If they were sitting here this morning, they would wonder why I'm presenting a lesson on it. That is what to them is a minor issue. What they may in their minds think of is simply a preference issue. You can either have the instrument or not have it. It doesn't really matter because that's not something that we really ought to be concerned with is the attitude of a lot of people. It is because, I repeat... It is because of our commitment to the restoration of New Testament Christianity in this, our modern world, that this issue is of great interest and deep concern to every one of us. That commitment includes our adherence to the idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and remaining silent where the Bible is silent. Dan Chambers, in his book, Churches in the Shape of Scripture, which many of you own and even more have read, has a chapter on our musical worship that is absolutely a wonderful treatment of this subject. But in that, he has an interesting modern restoration story that's very similar to our own. And I want to end this study with that story, if I may. Now, remember, we're talking about restoring the beliefs and the practice of the ancient church, of the New Testament church, in our day and time. That's our plea. That's our aim. That's our goal. There was a book, Dan says, on the shelves of many bookstores in 2005 that's called Old Light on New Worship. Now, as a lifelong singer of vocal-only praise in in church, it was actually the subtitle that kind of catches our eye. The subtitle of the book, hang with me for a moment, the book isn't as long as the title, but the subtitle is Musical Instruments and the Worship of God, a Theological, Historical, and Psychological Study. That gives you some idea of the premise of the book. But while the subtitle may catch our eye, it was the author of the book that really piques our curiosity. Because the man who wrote the book is a fellow by the name of John Price, and he is a Reformed Baptist minister from New York. And in the preface, Price explained how his book came into being. First, though, you need to know something about the Reformed Baptist Church. They have almost always used only one instrument— to accompany their congregational singing, and it's usually a piano, and that's because it is a matter of conviction to them. I'll let Price take it from here, and I'm quoting. More than three years ago, Price writes, a study was conducted in a sister Reformed Baptist church with the conclusion that various musical instruments are warranted in New Testament worship. Now remember, they've just been using one. firmly believe that only one is allowed. But now there's this this study that says various instruments can be used in New Testament worship. And then he goes on to say, The audio tapes of this study came into the possession of one of the members of my congregation, and they passed them on to me. I later became aware that these tapes were having a wider distribution with some influence among other Reformed Baptists. In listening to those tapes, I realized that further study was necessary on this subject And then he winds up by saying what I began, what began as a relatively brief study developed over time into what you hold in your hands, which is this book, end quote. After presenting the fruits of his exhaustive study to the congregation, they came collectively to this conclusion. Now, remember, the choices were we will stay worshiping with just one instrument, as we've always done, or we will acknowledge that multiple instruments in worship are permissible. They chose neither option. Instead, here's what's happened. Price writes As a result of this study, we have been convinced that we should no longer use any instrument in accompanying our congregational singing. That's kind of surprising. Certainly very interesting, wouldn't you say? It kind of reminds me of the people of Nehemiah's day, about which Nehemiah wrote in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, after they discovered that long lost hut building command of God. They were so committed to obeying God to restoring what had not been done for many years because they understood that that was something that God required of them to be pleasing to God. In effect, they said, you know, wow, we're supposed to be sitting around in huts while we're observing this feast. Let's go out and build some huts. And they restored a practice that had been neglected for many, many years because they understood now that that is, in fact, and has always been the will of God. I think in the very same way, in that same spirit, that this Reformed Baptist Church said, in effect, Wow, you know, our study reveals that we shouldn't be using any instrument while offering our praise to God. Let's get rid of our piano. Interesting. My prayer, my hope, my dream, is that more Bible-believing people, sincere people, will embrace that same spirit of restoration in their worship. And choose to go back to the simple New Testament practice of vocal only praise. Now granted, that would be a startling and radical change. But I remind you that restoration is usually both startling and radical. That's why true restoration demands boldness. May we all have the boldness to follow the will of God no matter what. And if I know my heart, that's where I stand. And as long as God gives me life, I'll be preaching the old Jerusalem gospel. And inviting men and women to become New Testament Christians, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And that's what we invite you to today, while we stand, while we sing.